Hello, I'm Lisa German, Dean of the University of Minnesota Libraries, and I'm glad to be here with you and glad you could join us this evening. Welcome to the 2022 Feast of Words, the library's annual celebration and presentation of Food for Thought, brought to you tonight by the Friends of the University Libraries and the Campus Club. It's been a great partnership, and I'd like to thank the Campus Club and our friends. We will hear tonight from two leaders of a promising project and partnership called Minnesota Transform Adjust University or Adjust University for Just Futures. We will also hear from two of our community partners. Minnesota Transform is funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, which recognizes that this initiative will make an impact on the future of Minnesota, particularly with our Black, Indigenous, and other communities of color. Minnesota Transform embraces all communities as we seek to decolonize our future and promote justice for everyone, particularly those who previously have been excluded from privilege. Minnesota Transform is an exciting, wide-ranging, and high-aspiration initiative. Jigna Desai is the principal investigator of Minnesota Transform and professor in the Department of Gender, Women, and Sexuality Studies in the Asian American Studies Program. She and Tracy Deutsch, the project's faculty coordinator and associate professor of history, will lead tonight's discussion. They will be joined by Minnesota Transform Partners, Mike Hoyt of Pillsbury House Plus Theater, and Kat Nelson, social sciences librarian with the University Libraries. This evening, we suggest you bring your own dinner or dessert. As the co-host of this annual event, the Campus Club has historically catered a delightful dinner. However, this year, like last year, we must offer a virtual event in order to be safe for everyone. Still, we hope you find intellectual repast intriguing and satisfying. Before we begin, I'd like to share a perspective that is relevant and important to all of us. The University of Minnesota Twin Cities is built within the traditional homelands of the Dakota people. It is important to acknowledge the people on whose land we live learn and work. As we seek to improve and strengthen our relations with tribal nations, we also acknowledge that words are not enough. We must ensure that our institution provides support, resources, and programs that increase access to all aspects of higher education for American Indian students, staff, faculty, and community members. I'd also like to just take a moment because the United Nations General Assembly has de designated January 27th, the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz-Birkenau as the International Holocaust Remembrance Day. On this day of commemoration, the UN urges every member to honor the 6 million Jewish victims of the Holocaust. So thank you all very much. Thank you to our panelists 
And now let's hear from Jigna and Tracy. Good evening. Thank you so much for being here. And thank you, Lisa, for welcoming us and, um, and, and allowing all of us to share in this feast of words. Uh, give me one second, and I'm going to do the technological thing that we do. Um, particularly, we're really appreciative that you've decided to spend your evenings um, on a Zoom call with us, on a webinar with us, um, when you could be in many different places. But we hope that the work we're sharing um, will actually be a lot of food for thought. I just wanted to give you a little bit of background on this project um, that has emerged and we're uh, kind of in the midst of, um, in the middle of right now. And as uh, Lisa generously was talking about, the Mellon Foundation announced a um, $72 million uh, initiative in August of 2020. And it was a, um, place to think about not only what can we do at a university, but thinking about how universities are places where knowledge is produced, but that they also have long histories as sites of knowledge and the power relations that determine what counts as proper knowledge. And as we're sitting on the, um, uh, not in, in acknowledging that this is Dakota land, um, that the opening acknowledgement recognizes that universities are also enmeshed in these historical and current structures of oppression and violence, um, such as settler colonialism, but also related to other structures such as enslavement, segregation, and state violence. And universities have, as scholars have been really exploring, uh, profited from slavery, settler colonialism, um, in the case of land-grant institutions, genocide, experimentation that's exploited people of color and indigenous people, or buying and selling of real estate um, in ways that gentrify neighborhoods and displace um, neighbors and residents. And though this has been um, increasingly the focus of a new field of humanities research called critical university studies by which this project is uh, in conversation with. And the Mellon Foundation announced this grant, I think in part, um, as the events of 2020 catalyzed interest in ways that universities can and must reckon with their past and also with the possibilities they hold to be sites of racial justice in the present and for the future. The Mellon Foundation is one of the largest foundations that supports arts and humanities. And amidst the multiple catastrophes facing society and universities, that 2020 um, grant engendered a very quick process um, for application and um, uh, awarding. And in that time period, by December 2020, they had um, awarded 16 universities uh, grants of $5 million for a duration of three years. And the grants themselves are focused um, on multidisciplinary university-based teams that are committed to racial justice and social equality. And we were fortunate at the University of Minnesota to be a recipient of one of those um, and are housed in the Institute for Advanced Study um, in relation to this. I'm going to turn it over to Tracy to tell you a little bit about the grant um, and the specificities of, of how it's been imagined. Yeah, thank you, Jigna, and thank you everyone for spending some of your Thursday night with us. Um, so Minnesota Transform, or MNT, or MINT as we call it, 
is a response to the Mellon's call um, that builds on work that all of the collaborators were doing um, in and with community. We focus on the particular possibilities and histories that entangle the University of Minnesota in its communities. Importantly, we use the tools of the humanities, historical, narrative, and artistic work. Minnesota has long struggled with its own complicities in terms of things like medical experimentation, the exclusion of BIPOC and Jewish students and community from campus, the impacts of COVID, um, et cetera. Minnesota Transform is part of and helps to support those reckonings as we also try to reimagine the university and celebrate its possibilities. A good example of what we do is the Truth Project. Um, this is a photo of interns from the Truth Project. Truth stands for Towards Recognition, Recognition and University Tribal Healing, and it supports tribal research fellows documentation of the university's relationship with their own communities. The research includes archival access and training, that's what you see here, but also collecting oral narratives and the knowledge of tribal members about being the subject of university experiments or university policy. Together, the work of these research fellows will form the basis of a report that will be submitted to the Minnesota Indian Affairs Council, tribal and community public history projects, and that will extend tribes' abilities to tell and to know their own histories. As the example of the Truth Project suggests, we accomplish our reimagining of the university by, under, by unearthing knowledge that has been excluded from universities. And we do it through collaboration with people who are closest to and invested in that knowledge. In so doing, we change both the knowledge and research that universities offer and also challenge how universities operate. For instance, the Truth Project was designed and suggested by the Minnesota Indian Affairs Council, who works in collaboration with, but not under the direction of, university scholars and historians. And I want to be clear that we do this not simply to make up for the university's complicity. That is, we do it to reckon with the past and um, to try and rectify the wrongs from the past, but we also do it because we think that's how knowledge should be created. We demonstrate that engaging with publics is what universities should and in fact are able to do. We have particular commitments to putting humanities on the front lines of racial justice struggles. We explore what it would be like if the university had a presence in those struggles in much the same way that it has a presence in the state's business and political life. Our work has expanded both the capacity of our partners, but also their and certainly our imagination of what a university can do. And I think Mike and Kat will speak to some of that later on. What this means is that our grant is about process, about how we engage, as well as about particular projects. And I'm gonna turn it over to Jigna to talk in a little more detail about how we work. So when you think about the five Ws, you know, who, what, where, when, how, uh, we're kind of a loose, um, you know, a group of faculty, graduate students, staff, um, community organization, postdoctoral fellows um, that are working together to do this. And so we have internships for undergraduate um, students and graduate students. We work with staff who help coordinate um, and build those bridges and connections with um, partners and maintain those relations. And we also have um, scholars who are 
up and coming um, and are um, coming to us with expertise and experience in these areas of working with communities or doing work on memory um, and genocide, for example, uh, in, in different ways. So as we think about um, our leadership team, um, we've worked really hard to think about partnerships that are both external and internal to the university. And this is a list of some of our partners um, and they include nonprofits, museums, um, other colleges. Um, this is a grant focused on racial justice in higher ed, um, working with public schools, um, working with uh, partnerships with a community folks who are very committed to producing knowledge for and by communities. And I think that range of um, collaborators here, I think also speaks to the kinds of projects, whether it is building their own archives or learning how to, um, uh, you know, train students in thinking about um, what it means to do artistic work with and by communities. Um, for example, that memorialized the movement did as part of social movements um, and during the uprisings um, following the murder of George Floyd as community members, especially black artists um, made art and what it means to archive that um, for and by the community. And so our external partners, as well as many of our internal partners are focused on thinking about racial justice and transformation in the, United, uh, in the university. And we're really excited that the libraries have been such a key um, component and a key um, interlocutor and collaborator in that initiative. And what we talk about when we think about public humanities, is not just work that's public facing, but we want to transform how knowledge is made um, altogether. That the primary objective of this fellowship is to use Minnesota Transform as a fulcrum to imagine new ways that the universities can do this work in the face of long history of extractive practices. And university efforts to address its many publics are often channeled through engagement efforts, frequently through mechanisms that are exploitative or ineffective, or often um, in some ways um, leave unchanged um, the relationship between the university and the public. Um, might place students in, um, in different um, spaces, but then there isn't a recognition of the work that happens within those community spaces and the knowledge that's produced. So we really thought about BIPOC community artists um, as being also producers of knowledge and um, how we think about what that relationship is means that we think about the public as co-produced knowledge um, and the work that we do collaboratively is based on the agenda of our partners, um, not necessarily the things that we want to extract from communities, but the things that partners themselves want to create um, together with us. That doesn't mean that relationships are always easy. And in fact, often campus community partners have been characterized by inequalities of power that impede collaboration and introduce conflicts. And when they um, are focused often on valorizing spaces that ensure economic mobility um, and motivate those on the margins to be included into the university, but they are often still then um, 
kind of under acknowledging and if not erasing the ways that the university can play a role in gentrification or displacement in dispossession or precarity. And in Minnesota Transform, we're attempting to reckon with the university's complicities in a number of ways, and none of which um, on its own fully account for the structural inequalities. But we try to address even the smaller things that have come up um, from how, what kind of adequate uh, material support is necessary um, to not drain resources from the communities that we partner with or the organizations that we partner with. Um, and how do we think about the ways that people are being asked to offer their expertise without pursuing a process of shared knowledge production? And so we think about this in our process. And we believe that the quality of the relationships isn't just about funding. Um, we don't wanna be just another funding organization, but we wanna think really about how um, building on insights from critical ethnic studies, feminist studies, from um, other social movement works, that the relationships need to be grounded in trust, in, um, in accountability, in mutuality, rather than extraction, exploitation, and reification of power. And so we really believe that humanistic thinking, indigenous thought, feminist work, all really understand that relations and not just numbers matter. So we try to have our work be characterized by the values that derive from this form of praxis, um, moving perhaps at the speed of trust, um, developing critical connections and de deepening relationships, not just critical mass, um, and cultivating responsiveness. And um, that means showing up as we can when partners need us and how they need us while things are changing. Uh, this can get tricky as, you know, Partners don't always see a separation um, and publics don't see a separation from this part of the university and that part of the university. To many places, we are the university. And the work that we want to do, for example, um, when someone does something in the university, it attaches to us even though we may be against it or have nothing to do with it. So when campus police were deployed in Brooklyn Center after the murder of Dante Wright, for example, it stuck to us. We were marked by that deployment, even while we are advo um, actively advocating to stop the deployment of the campus police in these moments. So when you think about this kind of um, moment and why we're trying to think about public humanities on the front lines. We think about where knowledge is produced, which is not just on campuses, but in communities, um, in spaces that are not on, um, that are not sequestered in certain isolation. But also we think about the idea of front lines being urgent work, that we don't think about the humanities as being an urgent form of knowledge, um, but that work is critical during these moments of crisis. We think of humanistic work as slow work, and it can be, but it is also important to be mobilized for the present and in emergent situations. And so when we were thinking about when these um, opportunities came about and we were uh, applied for the melon, we were already thinking about what does it mean to put humanities on the front line um, through a coalition of different projects. And when we were um, thinking about how it means to be on the front line, when I was teaching um, at that time, as we all were, we were asking, what do our students need to know now? And how do we think about the work? Um, why do we read literature? Why do we do humanities now? And what does it mat matter during a crisis? 
And what I ask my students and what we've asked our projects are what is a crisis? Crisis for whom? When did it become a crisis or emerge as a crisis? The crises are contingent. Um, those with power have declared a crisis, but we must always ask crisis in what form. And one example um, is that the last financial crisis started years earlier for those who were systematically exploited um, and weren't privileged um, in um, working poor, working class, um, and when we're thinking about the 2008 financial crisis. So when we began to do this work, we understood that disasters, catastrophes, and crisis are moments of upheaval. There are moments of analysis, but they're also moments of disruption of the normal and the potential for change and transformation. And it's important in those moments to imagine otherwise, to imagine possibilities that we didn't know could be. And to know that it can be another way might also rely on looking at the places and working with groups um, whose knowledge has often been marked as subordinate or um, subjugated. So the name of Minnesota Transform from us is in the commander directive form. We didn't choose Minnesota Transforming. Um, we cho didn't choose Transform Minnesota. We choose Minnesota Transform. And you think of it as in the commander directive form. It's not in the past tense. It's not a gerund, but a command that we must do for our own survival. And we, you know, we think about it that people talk about the simultaneity of pandemics that we are facing, pandemic of COVID, but also of racism, the slow violence of climate change. Sorry, I have a new phone and I can't seem to turn off the dinging, so I apologize for that. Um, people talk about the ways that pandemic of racism, but also the slow violence of climate change is what we're facing in these moments of crisis. And it is difficult to build relationships to do this work, um, to shift universities and capitalism when we're so precarious, so burnt out um, and doing our best. Um, for example, Minty has not met in person. I don't think the, all of us have ever gathered in one space since the grant began. Um, most of this work has been done on Zoom, for example. We spend 10 to 20 hours a week um, in, on projects, um, almost all of them on Zoom. Um, and so we build with part relationships with partners in this way, but do show up in person when and when we can, especially for those partners. Um, but the, as Arundhati Roy says, in this moment, as there is upheaval, the pandemic is a portal. And she writes, historically, pandemics have forced humans to break from the past and imagine the world anew. This one is no different. It's a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and the smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. And so we hope that the work that we do here is to imagine new ways of operating within um, this moment that is a portal and to think um, as we do of taking care of each other, of building those relationships and of imagining otherwise um, as we rethink what might be possible. Thank you, Chigna. So we often among Minnesota Transform understand what we do as supporting knowledge that is often called subordinated or subjugated knowledge. And what we mean by that is knowledge that people have, but that has been suppressed or considered invalid. 
Um, the Truth Project is an example of that. Um, it builds on what members of tribal nations have long said about what the university has done to and with them and when its representatives showed up in their communities. One of the clearest examples of this is the massive profits made by the sale of native lands, not only to Minnesota universities, but to schools across the country. And scholars like Devarian Baldwin have begun to use the language of the land grab university rather than land grant university to describe this. Um, that's the situation that you see on the map that I think is about to be shown. Um, geographers painstakingly mapped the claims that universities made all over the country to native land. Truth in Minnesota is mapping how profits from the sale of Dakota land in particular supported schools all over the country from which native people were then excluded. The initiative of native people redefines new knowledge and the university's treatment of indigenous people as central facts of daily life on campus. These collaborations make knowledge accessible, um, increasing tribal research fellows capacity to engage with university archives and to prepare data in ways that both university leaders and tribal members can access and putting the centrality of the university's treatment of native peoples at the center of university functioning. Um, I wanna quickly go through another example of our work, which is um, an exhibit two students did called History for the Future. This emerged from the efforts of two students in the Heritage Studies program to situate present day mutual aid organizing um, into longer histories of community care and political activism. Students Andrea Manilov and Akoma Gaither did, began this project um, in the summer of 2020 in light of the abundance of community organizing that emerged during that time period and continued into the next year. Um, their method was to hold a series of community workshops as well as to conduct archival research. So they conducted a series of public programs in partnership with groups like Hennepin History Museum, Minnesota Youth Story Squad, the Eastside Freedom Library, and the information gathered in those community workshops actively shaped the historical interpretation of mutual aid that they presented in the exhibit. The print and digital materials from the partnerships and programming were brought together in physical exhibition space. Um, if you're interested, the project will be opening um, at Anderson Library, I believe later this spring. So um, Minnesota Transform produces a lot of material, documentaries, media, murals, reports, zines, exhibits like this, pedagogy workshops. We work to educate faculty about disability access and inclusion, um, maps. Rather than go through every project, we are very, very lucky tonight to have Mike Hoyt and Kat Nelson with us, two of our partners. Mike Hoyt will speak to our work with Pillsbury House and Theater. Um, Pillsbury, and so I'm gonna move to that to their part of the presentation tonight. Um, Mike has led Pillsbury House and Theater's creative community development work for eight years and has supported more than 150 artists in over 130 community engaged art projects via Arts on Chicago and Art Blocks initiatives. Hoyt is a Minnesota born Kanaka Maoli artist who maintains an individual community engaged arts practice. His accomplishments as a community engaged artist include awards from the Minnesota State Arts Board, a northernlights.mn Artists on the Verge Fellowship, a Jerome Visual Artist Fellowship, and a McKnight Visual Artist Fellowship. 
In 2017, Hoyt was selected as a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Culture of Health leader. Kat Nelson is a social scientist librarian at the University of Minnesota Libraries. In this interim role, she supports the research, teaching, and learning of faculty, staff, and students in the departments of American Studies, American Indian Studies, Anthropology, Asian American Studies, and Sociology. She has worked with the Minnesota Transform team to coordinate library support and training for researchers, and has been a strong advocate for the development of Minnesota Transform-sponsored internships in the university libraries. Kat is passionate about breaking down barriers to access both visible and invisible to education and information. And now I will turn it over to Mike. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for the introduction. I'm just gonna quickly roll through some slides and, and provide a little bit of background context about Pillsbury House and theater. And um, so we have an idea of where the work has been happening with Minnesota Transform. So Pillsbury House and Theater is um, actually part of a larger nonprofit organization in the Twin Cities, Pillsbury United Communities, which is over 140 years old. Um, and it comes out of the Solomon House tradition. Um, and as you can imagine, similar to um, what was presented earlier, we have a long history that is both um, very interesting and complicated as a settlement organization. You go to the next slide. Pillsbury House and Theater is located in um, South Minneapolis. We are one of five neighborhood centers that are part of Pillsbury United Communities. Um, and we are sort of a hybrid community organization where we offer bedrock neighborhood services, youth programs, child care, um, support for adults with disabilities, um, and um, serve as a, a community hub for, for people that just want to come in off the street. Um, roughly 24,000 people during non-COVID time <laughs> visit the, the theater um, in our center every year. And um, yep, I'm going to the next slide. Thank you. And so a lot of um, the, 30, the theater has actually been around for now. We're going on 30 years. Um, and roughly 15 years ago, the, the theater company merged with the neighborhood center. Um, so now we are an arts integrated hybrid organization, which means that it's essentially a neighborhood center that is run by artists and human service um, professionals in a very horizontal way. We kind of co-manage and co-produce everything that happens in the building. Um, so staff may be supporting production of work in the theater, but also helping out in the child care or working <laughs> um, with community groups or leading or facilitating uh, meetings with, with our neighbors. Next slide. Uh, but a lot of the, the work that we do is um, it serves, you know, ages 16 months to over 100 years old. And it's really sort of a three gen model of support for people in our immediate communities, which are Powderhorn Park, Central Neighborhoods, Bryant and Bancroft Neighborhoods. Um, intersecting at the intersection of 38th and Chicago Avenue South. Slide. We also um, run multiple social enterprise programs. We have a bike shop. It's a full service shop that trains youth experiencing homelessness, um, provides them job training, work, workforce development, and um, paid living wage. Uh, we have a uh, theater ensemble called Breaking Ice, which also does DEI work. Um, and travels the country and works locally um, to work with large groups around challenging and sticky um, diversity, equity, inclusion issues within the workplace. 
Next slide. And then a lot of what we've been doing and engaging in over the past decade has been really trying to extend the work of our arts integrated approach into the neighborhood more um, intentionally with the artists that have been living and embedded in our community that we've been in relationship with to really foster a stronger ecosystem and to practice being um, stronger creative neighbors, essentially. Um, so over the past year, we've been working with Minnesota Transform on multiple different partnerships through interns um, placed within Pillsbury House and Theater, but also within um, collectives and other organizations that are either um, tenants within the Pillsbury House and Theater or using space um, during the, the pandemic as a meeting and workshop space. And so Pillsbury House and Theater specifically has been working with Treasure Tinsley to do a public um, history project, collecting stories um, throughout our neighborhood and community of the, the impact and their connection to the arts, um, and particularly the legacy of Black and people of color artists that have um, gone underrepresented throughout our community for, for many decades. Um, and we'll be starting a new project that will roll out in um, actually just started rolling out with um, DeWitt King, who is gonna be an intern supporting a new initiative of art blocks that will place 20 artists across our five neighborhood centers in Minneapolis um, to essentially use art and creativity as a way for neighbors to connect with one another. Um, but it's been reimagined to um, build in support around community safety and neighbors identifying and working together to collectively um, strategize around abolitionist models and ways that they can advance safety in their community. Um, and so some of the partners that are located within our building that are also working, have been working with Minnesota Transform um, that I'm not directly involved with, but um, are, um, there's interns and administrative support for Leslie Parker Dance Company with a Call to Remember project. Um, there's an intern and folks working with the George Floyd Global Memorial Project that's currently housed in our building. Um, and in the future, some of the work that we're thinking about trying to expand upon is um, both working with Minnesota Transform around training our staff around language, Dakota language um, classes, um, working through moving beyond land acknowledgements to, um, to actual actions. Um, how do we build in land tax or how do we think about land back um, initiatives? Um, and then some work around upcoming productions of our remount of Jimmy, Jim Lee and Lorraine, which is a production about um, James Baldwin and, and Lorraine Hansberry. Um, and we'll be having a traveling sculpture about Lorraine Hansberry's life and work um, being introduced into our community. And so we're hoping to work with um, students from Minnesota Transform to develop community engagement activities with our community to really learn more about the incredible work of Lorraine Hansberry. Um, so those are some of the work that we're engaged in. Thank you. Okay, I think that's me. Um, my uh, first, actually, I want to thank Jigna and Tracy for inviting me to be on this panel. There are many people in the university libraries that are helping to support Minnesota Transform and, and their work. I am only one of them, so thank you very much. Um, my name is 
Kat Nelson, um, and I'm a social sciences librarian. Uh, so what does that mean? I support faculty and grad students in their teaching and research by connecting them with library resources and services. I also do a fair amount of what is called collection work, um, meaning I make decisions about purchasing things like books, videos, journals, and databases for the library collections. Um, my work requires a deep understanding of the culture of research and the types of research done in each of the subject areas that I work with. And I also think a lot about how knowledge is produced and shared in those disciplines. I teach and I have a passion for helping undergraduate students connect with research opportunities. And like many people at the university, I attend a lot of meetings. Uh, so when I first learned about Minnesota Transform, I knew immediately that I wanted to be a part of the work that Tracy and Jigna and their team would be doing. The grant aligns closely with the departments I work with, but also it taps into so many areas of library work and research that I have an interest in. Minnesota Transform's mission to create new narratives and dialogues by providing communities the chance to tell their own stories to me really gets at the tension between libraries as community centers and libraries as cultural institutions that reflect the dominant culture in the US. Um, and that culture would be white, male, middle, upper class, cisgendered, able-bodied. This is something that the university libraries and libraries all over the United States are wrestling with and trying to find our way through. One of the most awesome things, in my opinion, about the grant is that it is based around a large number of internships. And better yet, these internships are paid. Um, library programs, whether graduate programs or associate level programs, typically require completion of an internship in order to graduate. These internships are largely unpaid, which is a huge equity issue. Unpaid internships put up barriers to the library profession for people who quite honestly can't afford to work for free or who don't have the time to work for free because they are working already or have familial obligations. So this is but one of the barriers that I believe is keeping librarianship incredibly homogenous. Uh, there are other things too, but I'm not gonna get into them here. Uh, so when I found out that uh, Minty or Minnesota Transform was paying for interns, I thought two things, one, I love working with students, let's give this a try. And two, just maybe this could be a way to move the university libraries toward creating an internship program that would offer paid internships. Um, so fellow librarian Kim Clark and I wrote up some proposals and passed them around and they were hit. And come the beginning of the fall semester, I had two interns who would work on building research guides on social justice topics of their choosing. And Kim had an intern who would work on researching how libraries assess their collections for diversity. Next slide. So I worked with two interns to create library research guides. A research guide is a digital collection of resources centered around a topic. Guides include links to books, databases, articles, and more. Um, Guides can be instructional, providing background information on the topic, or they can just be the resources. Jessica Barriman Martinez, a first year grad student in anthropology, chose to create a guide titled American Indians in Minnesota Topics and Issues. This guide is 
and a great jumping off point for anyone interested in understanding issues facing Native Americans in Minnesota and across the US. Jessica included resources on community and culture, tribal government governance, the land back movement, land grab universities, and the impact of pipelines on Native communities. She also took a deep dive into indigenous research methodologies, ethical guidelines, and data sovereignty. Next slide. Kelly Plevniak, a fifth-year grad student in anthropology, worked to update and add to an existing guide on open access repositories for anthropology. Um, an open access repository is a digital platform that holds research outputs like articles, data, images, audio recordings, all kinds of things, and provides free, immediate, and permanent access for anyone to use. I had intended to use this guide as a training vehicle for both interns, but Kelly got super excited about the subject and after discussion, it was decided that she would run with it. And I'm really glad that that is the way that that worked out. Um, this guide is now much more comprehensive and robust with an introduction that both increases understanding the contents of the guide and works to advocate for open access. Kelly also created a guide titled Understanding University Policymaking. Kelly feels that it is important for students to be involved in processes that govern the university. This guide is a vehicle to increase student understanding of how a complicated and convoluted process works and highlights the points of entry for student voices. Through the work of creating these guides, uh, the interns learned about finding library resources and writing for an audience. They also got to dig deeper into subjects that were incredibly important and interesting to them. I know that from conversations I had with both Kelly and Jessica, these projects got them thinking about libraries, information, and their topics in new ways. I will be continuing on as the owner of these guides, um, but as with many web-based products, they will require ongoing maintenance. So new resources will become available and guidelines and ways of thinking will change. Research guides aren't really meant to be static. So one question I have been thinking about is how do I keep them up to date with resources and ideas without changing the hearts of them? Next slide. So Kim Clark's work with Magali Ordonez, um, Magali's internship will continue through the spring. This work is gonna be crucial uh, to work that a subcommittee in the libraries has been doing. The Racial Equity and Collections Group has been tasked with creating a roadmap for increasing racial diversity in library collections. During this internship, Magali is creating an annotated bibliography containing everything that they can find on racial equity and diversity in library collections. They are also compiling a list of librarians doing collection development work at minority serving institutions that could be contacted for informational interviews. Um, Magali's research will provide much needed information on how other libraries are approaching this work and even take the first steps toward creating relationships with other librarians working in this area. Um, and then, we wrote one other proposal for an internship that will be happening this spring. Um, Madison Rogers will be working as a social justice programming intern uh, to deliver uh, design and deliver programming related to 
social justice. Um, I'm not totally sure what form this is going to take yet, because uh, they will be working with Carissa Tomlinson, um, but I am really excited to see what that ends up being. Next slide. So apart from the internships, the University Archives has been a partner in working with classes, faculty, students, and researchers to explore and research university history and to support Minnesota Transform's efforts at accounting for university history and actions in the past. And this includes working with people who want to use the physical collections in Anderson Library or with digitally available content, including university records in the Digital Conservancy. Um, and one example of a project that I have been lucky enough to help support along with people in the university archives is the Truth Project. And one thing that I see about this project is that it involves building relationships with the researchers. The Truth Project is intended to be a reparative project, um, uncovering wrongs that were done and surfacing perspectives of people harmed by institutional practices and practitioners is a step toward healing. And I see the library playing a critical role in this process, not only in ensuring the researchers have access to what they need, but also in listening and thinking deeply about the questions and challenges of doing this work. And then we can stop sharing now. Um, and I just have one more thing. Uh, barriers to access come in many forms. They can be logistical, like the need to set up university accounts for members of the community that aren't affiliated with the university so they can have access to library resources for their projects. Um, they can be physical, such as library spaces that don't support the access needs of people. And they can be based on damage done to relationships in the past, or they may arise from the library's role in supporting Eurocentric ways of knowing and sharing information. I'm really looking forward to exploring how we can work through these barriers to access. And so, yeah, I think there's a discussion that's going to happen next. So thank you, Kat and Mike, for sharing your um, experiences and the great projects that you all are working on. Um, Jacqueline and I thought we would have just sort of stage a discussion about the experience of working with Minnesota Transform um, and how it's what we get out of it. Um, so uh, Jacqueline, do you want to lead off with the first question? Sorry, I was trying to get the links up um, in response to the chat. So, but I will start. Just, I'll do that. Um, in thinking about uh, you know the the ways we've kind of approached humanities being on the front lines of racial justice struggles over the past years, what would you say uh, does that resonate with you? And if so, what 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 has it meant for you? And you know, Mike, I was thinking a little bit about Pillsbury, which is at thirty eighth. And um, it's already at 35th, 6th, yeah. right? Like between those spots. Um, 
I pass it all the time going um, back and forth on Chicago. And so, you know, I'm thinking very much of kind of artwork um, and humanities and kind of programming um, collection, like how all the things you've been doing for the last few years have really responded to local needs in many different ways, um, but also around storytelling and collection and archiving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think a great example, and it's not our work, but the work that has um, transformed George Floyd Square and how the community and the first response was artists claiming that space and creating public record um, for our collective reckoning um, and marking of events and state violence and um, community truce and harm and all of you know the joys and struggles that have existed here for for decades through um, through not just those immediate violent acts of the uprising but also the structural inequities that have existed in this community for you know, for over 100 years. Um, so I think that the transformation of those spaces and the way that, the, that artists and activists have reclaimed public space as a way of um, using the humanities as a, as a public document, a public record, um, is one that is very powerful in our immediate neighborhood, two block stretch. So I thought I would um, give an example of a different way, that, a different kind of project that puts racial justice on the front lines. Um, unless you have more to say, Mike, I don't wanna cut you off. Okay, um, so I am gonna share a story map that some undergraduate students created um, in a class that uh, Kevin Murphy and I co-taught, oh, I think I'll make that last document public in a minute. Um, let me share my screen. And what I like about this is um, it's a good example of how student learning really makes change. So this is, go to full. This is a story map that um, undergraduate students in a public history class did about um, the university's relationship with the West Bank of campus, which is very different from the university's relationship with the East Bank, where there's a lot of construction and housing, and it's kind of a prominent feature in university tours. The West Bank is really, um, ignored by a lot of campus. And so they covered the whole history of the West Bank and its, um, its history of dispossession, its importance as a site of um, immigrant and of immigrant housing and immigrant communities dating from Bohemian Flats in the late 19th and early 20th centuries through um, the early days of Cedar Riverside, um, and then the expansion of the university to the West Bank, um, which was both um, a way of the university accommodating new students and also importantly, um, a part of urban renewal efforts because the neighborhood was understood as a blighted area, which meant that it would, the housing was seen as substandard and the people who lived there seen as 
um, people who could be dispossessed, which in fact the university and other entities worked to do throughout the um, 1960s um, and the late 1950s with the construction of um, the Washington Avenue Bridge um, and much of the West Bank. So they went through university archives. You can see they um, looked both at, they created these maps, but also found images. Um, they did really extraordinary research into the politics of the West Bank. And then they ended with, um, efforts of people in the community to push back against incursions um, and to um, maintain um, their own community in what's now Riverside Towers. So when, and then they talked about the university's relationship um, with the West Bank. When we first showed, the students um, showed this story map, at a public event that we held at the end of class, which um, Emilius White was nice enough to attend. He might even be here tonight. And he was so struck by the ways that the students had learned about the university's treatment of the West Bank and the people who lived on the West Bank that he contacted the university admissions office, which changed the way they talked about the West Bank and its relationship to campus. So that's just a really, um, I think, straightforward example of how humanities work can really be on the, can really make a change in these struggles in ways we don't always imagine. I wonder if folks would be um, willing to talk about what you've learned through the collaboration or what surprised you most um, about this? And either, um, yeah, about any component. Sure. I mean, this, this kind of ties into the map that Tracy was actually sharing because um, Treasurer, who's been doing public history work in our community, also has learned about um, the process of building the, you know, the towers and Cedar Riverside community and the, the massive displacement of of residents at that time. Um, but it's also our organization, Pilsbury and Communities, is implicated in all that work from you know 50 years ago and um, was brought into the process as the sort of community mediator, as we're often often community organizations can be seen um, by municipalities, cities, um, developers as the, the voice of the community, right? So um, so I think one of the learnings and one of the, the challenges is to not have institutional memory loss, right? Um, if we get approached by the city or by developers or by organizations to serve in that role, um, that is an impossible role to fulfill um, because we can never be representative of the community at, at whole. Um, how do we not fall into those trappings um, to continue those patterns of inequitable practice. So I think that's something that we continue to always struggle with um, because so much of our work is relationship-based and those relationships include neighbors, but they also include the elected and, um, and all of the people in between. I, uh, so 
one of the things that I don't want to say I, I wasn't surprised. It didn't surprise me actually, but it it gave me pause and makes me think. Um, is uh, the on the as Jessica was was working on the American Indian American Indians in Minnesota guide. Um, it became clear that there are a lot of links on that guide that go to archival collections, that go to websites, digital humanities projects. Um, and in some ways, this is awesome, right? Because it, it is those sort of um, other types of resources. They're open. They're not, they're not things that the library had to purchase. Um, but they are things that still need to be preserved in some way. Uh, so sort of the, the downside is that the links are likely to change and the websites and projects may become defunct. And I, I feel like that highlights the need to attend to, to ongoing maintenance and preservation for this kind of knowledge. Um, it, yeah, it raises some deep thoughts. I'm going to jump in really quick with a quick surprise. One of the things I didn't realize um, was the, kind of what you were saying earlier, Kat, about internships and who can have access to internships. Um, and the ways that working on campus, for example, um, it becomes actually something that fewer and fewer students can afford to do as the wages go up in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, to living wages around 15, and the campus is paying 10 to 11 to undergraduates, those opportunities um, become less and less accessible to those who need a higher stable income um, as they're going to college. And so we hear of undergraduates who prefer to work at Target, um, even though the intellectual and kind of research and scholarly opportunities that are available on campus will really be beneficial to them, they can't afford it. And so really thinking about who has access to internships, who's able to make use of them, um, how critical is it to their learning experience to get praxis and move out of the classroom, but can't do it. And so that has been something structurally that we're so struck by. And really have fostered um, a way to make sure that we pay our interns um, wages that are livable and to make sure that that it becomes a point of access and equity and inclusion and it doesn't foreclose the possibility of having these experiences of working in the communities that they are so tied to or or making the transformations and having the knowledge valued um, that's been a really critical point that um, has been important to me and, and a bit of a surprise yeah, I would just add to that, um, you know, in the in the vein of the multiple pandemics that you framed for us earlier, um, you know, over the past year and a half, you know, we've lost 30% of our staff capacity um, and we had to quickly pivot to, I hate that term pivot. <laughs> we had to quickly shift to doing a significant amount of community aid um, immediately following the uprising um, because not only did our neighborhood become a, a 
food desert, but also became a medication desert. Became you know the access to so many important critical things were just gone. Um, and so to to have to to do that significant shift um, with less and less capacity um, was really challenging. And so volunteers and paid interns and and um, really supportive people made the difference, all the difference in the world, not only at our location, but also in relationship to other people that were doing mutual aid in our immediate community to be able to thread and weave those networks together more strongly. And, um, and I think one of the things that we benefit from through this partnership is that there are many of our community stakeholders that have lost more capacity um, and they're really struggling. And and when we work in relationship through partnerships of organizations or people or um, coalitions and everyone's capacity is fractured, um, it's really hard to maintain cohesion um, when there's work that's trying to, to do community aligned work at least. And so the interns have afforded us a little more stability um, in ensuring that we can maintain some of those relationships to, to continue to work forward and not lose those relationships um, forever. Yeah, um, Mike, your response really makes me think about one thing that um, Jigna and I are often saying, which is that this is really a pandemic project. Um, it's really, as Jigna was saying, we've never all met in person on Minnesota Transform. We've done everything on Zoom. We wrote the grant on Zoom. We administer it on Zoom. Um, and it's really been informed by the precarity of this moment in a way that I think is really permeates the grant and also makes its urgency really clear to us. So part and one effect of that is our focus, as Jigna was saying, on sort of the nitty gritty of how universities can do things to be inclusive or to be exclusive. So kind of the very concrete, practical changes and supports that can happen. For instance, um, we didn't realize how little many university jobs paid, frankly. And so paying a living wage really has an impact. Or as Kat was suggesting, um, making university resources accessible to community members is a huge thing. And it really, but it requires shifts in the bureaucracy and the policies and the ways that they're administered. Um, I'm wondering, um, before we shift to Q&A from the audience, um, Jigna or Kat and Mike, are there any, do you, can you speak to the kind of specificities, either of the challenges you've seen or the changes you've made working on these projects? Okay, I have I have something. Um, so as I touched on a little bit with um, uh, Magali Ordonez's uh, internship work, the libraries is deeply involved in addressing racial inequity in our collections. Um, and so far, we have been looking primarily at ways to increase the number of books, journals, newspapers representing BIPOC voices. Um, but I think one thing that it is, 
that that I am struggling with um, or or that I keep kind of running into is that um, I suspect that in order to truly do this work, we're going to need to think through how we understand knowledge and knowledge products and how valuing the written word over other forms of communication implicitly means that we are devaluing other ways of communicating knowledge. And when we do this, we risk continuing to only tell the story from the dominant perspective. Um, and of course, this is super sticky uh, because libraries are built on the written word and, um, and enlightenment notions of what qualifies as knowledge and truth. And uh, the medium matters. Um, so, I don't know, that, that is one of the things that, that this work has got me thinking through right now. Yeah, I think, um, I think some of our, our learning and challenges that continue to, to plague us are, are just sort of how to be effective in our relationship with um, interns and volunteers and, and partners and um, in COVID and, and working remotely is, is a piece of that. Um, but we've always been this sort of shifting kind of distributed um, nebulous assemblage of work in a way. And um, it's fairly like radically porous in how we operate. Um, so it, it can, feel very disorienting for um, interns and people that come on board, um, especially if there's an expectation that there's a really concrete idea of what the work is and where it happens and when it ends. <laughs> um, and, and I think this year for, for many people in the world has um, kind of destroyed those notions a little bit, but it's still hard for us to, um, to want to support people um, in their work and their learning and their growth and our work. Um, but to provide a, a solid enough container for them to be held and feel comfortable and supported and productive. I feel like um, I'm really trying to learn how to actually live what I learned through critical disability studies and scholars um, and what critical disability folks have been saying for a long time of a guest care work of how do we care for each other? And that's exactly it. And, and there's a large component of our projects that we didn't talk about here that are everywhere. Like there's work on disability studies, there's um, work on uh, with youth, there's work on storytelling, but a lot of it is guided, I would say, by the care work, um, by our relations, by how we have to survive in this moment um, and have survived for a long time and stories from people who have survived for long times in, in all kinds of conditions um, and have known truths, whether it is especially um, in light of the precarity of our bodies um, from disabled folks and who have been writing and reading and telling us um, you know what's going on and um and things that we did not seem and said were impossible um but now become very possible and so kinds of ways of access and inclusion um 
or how we might need to be taking care of our bodies and minds together um, that were not seen as the right way to think about it. But now all of a sudden it becomes the norm when able-bodied people are doing it. And so there's ways um, that that kind of um, emphasis um, we have a, you know, is so critical and trying to live it and not just study it. That's the part in the classroom, out of the classroom in meetings that I think we're trying to figure out. What does it mean to actually have this as a praxis of life? That in every space we go into, we're approaching each other with care, that we are thinking about what we need, what kinds of relations we have each other, and thinking about who's most precarious in this room or not in this room, in this Zoom or not in the Zoom, that need to be at the forefront. What knowledges need um, to be foregrounded and move us um, in ways that we are still learning to embody um, and speak to each other. So I think that's the work that I feel like, oh my gosh, it's just so much um, in the sense of like integrating it, not just it's out there, but it's like living it is so hard because damn, capitalism's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard um, to fight against the things that just ossify and take us right back to the old ways of doing and being. And so how do you actually understand this moment of possibility in a portal? Jigna, that is an awesome segue to one of the questions that was asked in the Q&A. Um, somebody who's anonymous um, asked about, um, made the point that um, disability injustice has also been central to the university because eugenics was such a prominent um, subject taught and researched at the university. So I wanna, um, and that the university sort of perpetuates and perpetuated the public devaluing of people with disabilities. Um, it's a great question. And what Jigna has just said is real about disability and what it would mean to value um, people who are precarious, people with vulnerabilities, is something that we all take quite seriously um, and I think informs a lot of the work that we do in, mo in all of our projects. One of the things in a very practical way that we've done with this grant is hire a full-time disability justice access and inclusion specialist um, who works so far mostly with folks on campus about not just the practicalities of inclusion, but also what it would mean to design things from an inclusive way from the get-go. So you're not just accommodating, but you're creating spaces that are um, inclusive from the beginning. Um, and we, we take quite seriously um, both the legacy of eugenics and the profound changes that are immediately affected if you center disability and the needs of vulnerable people. Jigna, do you want to say more about that or should we move on to another question? Yeah, I, I'm happy to, you know, and, and I'll say, um, for example, the pedagogy specialist, you know, works on, like I think has a full calendar all the way through May, oh right? Because people have already booked ahead and said, this is something we want to integrate into our departments as we want it for our classes. We've run workshops um, for instructors. So we really focus on pedagogy, but we're also doing something called COVID stories. And if you follow us on Twitter, um, you'll see that we post how um, people with disabilities, um, how care labor, um, how all of COVID's um, experiences on campus are happening. And we're about to launch another series um, focused on disabled people's stories um, in this moment. And so we're just starting to build that up and um, 
create our own collection and create our own um, kinds of, not necessarily archives, um, but collections of stories um, like that we can publish, right? There's like, whether it's on social media or on websites um, that are gathering um, what perspectives and stories we wanna share around um, and from disabled people. So it's central to our work, I hope. There's a couple of questions here that are basically about um, how we um, persuade people of the importance of the humanities and how we talk about the value of the humanities in the grant. Um, and I bet that's something we could all, we all have something to say about. Um, how do we, um, I mean, I don't know, Jignet or Kat or Mike, how do you talk about the value of the humanities, particularly in these struggles around racial justice and access and inclusion? How do you make a case for the humanities in this climate? I mean, I think one thing that we've been working towards across Pillsbury United communities, not just Pillsbury House and Theater, is the, I guess, um, really intentional alignment and pairing of our different. Um, storytelling platforms. So there's the North News newspaper that's run by and produced by teenagers at North High. There's KRSM radio in uh, Phillips neighborhood. And then there's the Phillips House and Theater. So we have these three pretty significant platforms that are all different in their medium as well. Um, so how do we better organize ourselves internally to think about a broader narrative strategy? And how can that be embedded or in relationship to our policy arm of our organization. Um, so how does community storytelling, community narrative and truth um, directly link to our policy initiatives? Um, and I think that that's definitely something that we haven't thought about or organized around um, until now. And, and I think this is an exciting direction for our organization. So I think that's kind of an example that I would bring forward that we're still working through, but developing. Tracy, I'm sure you have some things to say, but you um, have some things to say. Yeah, and, and, and I'm happy to start a little. I think moments of crisis sometimes end up entrenching. Um, you know, it, I think about the 2008 financial crisis of the universities, and university endowments are much larger than they were. Um, prior to the financial crisis of 2008, um, and speaking um, nationally, um, but locally as well. And what happens in moments of crisis sometimes is a redistribution upward. Um, and the way I think about it is in moments like this, there's a redistribution upwards towards STEM, which is seen to be um, on the front lines. But in this way, as we can see with pandemics, if we don't consider the analyses that are offered by the interdisciplinary humanities, um, and I'm going to include some, you know, kind of more social science analysis, but if we don't include the analyses of these, we replicate the very structures of inequality that existed in the first place. You can't do work um, around health and well-being without, I think, interdisciplinary humanistic thinking, um, if you want to actually prevent the furthering of inequality through um, 
marginalizing and harming disabled people, uh, people of color, right? Like these structures of violence and oppression that exist in injustice then get replicated. And we need to transform knowledge. Um, and the argument that the humanities are critical to this is one that doesn't happen in the moment when we think because crisis is seen as an urgent moment to need to make a shift, but it's always in a way towards, I would say, um, towards STEM and away from the things that are seen to be slow and unresponsive. And I think partly that idea of on the front lines was encounter to this narrative. And it was very intentional that the humanities get seen as irrelevant um, and not urgent or useful to imagining otherwise. Um, and I think that's actually the work that needs to be imagined. Um, we can't think outside of racism if we're only stuck in this policy. We have to actually imagine worlds where there is a different, more just place to be. I, I just love that, Jigna. And I, it makes me, it like, as you were talking, I just thought of, I mean, humanities, it makes, it's the human, right? It reminds us all that we are all people. We all have, um, we all love beauty and we have different conceptions of what that beauty might be. And just, I don't know, it, it reminds us that it gives us hope. Yeah, I would add that, you know, sort of through our, our work um, in our neighborhoods, um, working with artists and culture bears, um, you know, a lot of people may not identify as an artist, but we truly believe that everyone is creative. Everyone has creative capacity. <laughs> and so part of our goals um, and part of our theory of change is if, if we can get as many people in our community engaged in their own artistic practice or creative expression, um, along with their neighbors, their family members, other people. Um, we actually increase people's access to resources, attachment to place and other people and an agency. Um, so those are the three things that we're really trying to, to elevate through an arts-based approach. So we have uh, one more question about um, what, I'm just gonna read this. Um, I'm impressed with the incredible breadth and depth of knowledge that is being co-produced with MNT. How are you envisioning taking this knowledge into action for transformation? Is changing the university the main or most immediate goal? Um, this, I will just say that what our main goal is, is something that we <laughs> um, debate within Minnesota Transform. And I think the place where we are now as an entity is that changing the university, we had to collaborate and do this co-production of knowledge to really understand what parts of the university could change and what parts were exclusionary. Um, and we're hoping to focus in this next year and a half or so that the grant lasts on um, how to make changes internally to the university to make it more porous to folks outside. Um, but the one lesson I've learned in this grant are the ways that the act of public engagement around the humanities helps you to see the university in a different way and to point to the policies and practices that could be changed. <laughs> 
So Tracy, Kat, Jigna, Mike, um, any last words? Well, if not, I will just say thank you all so much. And thanks to our audience for attending the 2022 Feast of Words. Um, this was an, a wonderful program. Um, together, we've glimpsed uh, visions of the future for our university, for our communities, and our state. And each of the presenters have already created positive partnerships and impacts, and we just thank you all so much. Um, I, I also look forward to all the initiatives. Those of you participating this evening have been provided tools and inspiration to collaborate on a better and brighter future for everyone here in Minnesota. This evening program is sponsored by the Friends of the Libraries. And if you're already a friend, we are very grateful for your support. And if you're not yet a friend, please consider becoming one and supporting our organization. Uh, you can find a link to our friends on our news blog, continuing.umn.edu. And I'd also like to thank the Campus Club and um, our friend's president this year, um, Amelius White. So thank you. Please join us at our upcoming Friends Forum events, giving voice to the past, featuring the University Singers on March 27th and our annual Pancake Poetry Reading on April 7th this year, um, featuring David Mira. So once again, thank you so much to our panelists um, and thank you very much for, in, uh, for joining us this evening. Have a good night. Bye-bye.